0: I'm James Lawler, and you're listening to Climate Now. In the United States, there has been a frustrating lack of major climate action at the federal level. I wanted to get a sense of why that might be by speaking with someone who knows their way around Washington. Ideally, someone who sat a front row seat, observing how policies do and don't move through our government's machinery. We met Alex McDonough. Now, Alex may not call himself a Washington insider, but he worked for 11 years under Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. First as legislative counsel, and then as a senior policy advisor for energy and the environment. Alex was also the vice president of public policy at the residential solar company Sunrun, and is now a policy advisor and partner at Pioneer Public Affairs, which is a clean energy lobbying firm. Alex is also a co-founder and board member of Clean Energy for America, which advocates for policies and leaders who champion the clean energy workforce. Alex, welcome to Climate Now. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So Alex, give us a little bit of backstory. How did you get to where you are today?
1: So this clean energy climate policy is not what I set out to do. After college, I worked for an international judicial reform organization in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan under a government contract. And really, I didn't fall into energy policy or environmental policy until I came back to the U.S. and Um, was lucky enough to get hired by Senator Harry Reid. I was offered a tremendous opportunity to work on environmental policy, which he had made a huge priority for Nevada, which was extraordinarily brave at the time. He made it about uh, climate, but he also made it about environmental justice and um, what pollution from coal-fired power plants was doing to nearby communities.
0: Interesting. What exactly does a senior policy advisor do? Like working for someone like Harry Reid, what does that entail
1: a policy advisor's role is to try to see things through the the eyes of their principal in my case senator reed i would do everything from meet with stakeholders meet with constituents from nevada meet with affected industries and formulate you know, how he should respond. Sometimes that response could be a public statement. Sometimes that response is introducing legislation. Sometimes that response is stopping legislation. The policy advisor's role is being a jack of all trades, not being a, a total expert at anything, but knowing how to get information, how to compile it, and how to make good recommendations to your principal.
0: In your view, what is the role of the federal government when it comes to climate?
1: The role of government is to act in the public interest to serve public welfare, keep us safe and secure. And climate change is the biggest threat we face in terms of environmental security, health, um, and, and even national security. It's actually quite simple. Like If we are to do something economy-wide to address climate change, we can't do it without the federal government engaging. There are a lot of different ways that they can engage. They can engage through a tax policy, through a, a carbon tax. They can engage through a cap and trade. They can engage through incentives like we're doing in Build Back Better. There are different ways that that can happen. We can address climate change if they're not engaging in some way.
0: Now, obviously, there's been a lot of news lately about climate policy in the United States and the lack thereof. I'm thinking about Build Back Better, for example, which is yet to be passed. And I wonder if you could talk about how a firm like yours, Pioneer Public Affairs, interacts with legislators who are formulating and negotiating something as huge as Build Back Better, also known as the Budget Reconciliation Bill. The
1: folks we work for play different roles in this whole ecosystem, right? We do work with some environmental organizations and their goal is the big picture. Their bigger mission is to make sure The whole thing gets across the finish line. So, you know, we will help with developing a strategy, developing a message, figuring out, you know, how to work with congressional offices or, you know, influential voices out there to say, let's get this done. But then there are are others that are, you know, trying to weigh in directly on the policy and a big portion of the Build Back Better clean energy and climate provisions is in the tax code. So these are, there's a just a, a large number of tax credits and a lot of industries affected. And so companies and organizations are watching these and weighing in on, from their view, improvements. And so we will advise them on what what is practical what is congress likely to accept what the administration might you know view as good policy and actually go to that forum and say yeah that should be included
0: you've worked so closely with a lot of these policies and you have a specific expertise in solar energy what could build back better do for solar in particular i worked
1: in the solar industry for 4 years and i think what's in the build back better bill is it, it is a game changer for the whole industry, not just in terms of continuing fueling deployment. Solar is only 3% of power on the grid today. So people look at the cost compared to natural gas and say, oh, it's the cheapest power out there. But 3% is is not much (laughs) in the grand scheme of things. We need to address climate change. That's the end goal. That's why we're doing this. And so you know, the Build Back Better would give a 10-year runway for tax incentives, um, but it would also provide new tax credits for domestic manufacturing, which is incredible. There are a couple new big factories uh, that have cropped up in the U.S. over the last few years, but not enough to sustain industry today, let alone the enormous amount of growth that's needed to hit that 40% that the Biden administration and and Department of Energy have forecast that solar needs to to reach in order to address climate change, hit the targets that they've set out to reduce
0: 50% of our emissions by 2030. How does that trickle down into the economy when a target like that is set? What, What actually happens?
1: Yeah. I mean, for the first time ever, are we seeing things in legislation that have a good chance of passing that could really bring that domestic manufacturing into the United States and make that happen? But what you see in very concrete ways is you you see investors, big investment firms um, start, you know, getting a better grasp of what the lay of the land of is in the industry. They're reaching out directly to industry players, whether they be on the policy side, but also on the, you know, the development side and just boosting their understanding. And so like I get a ping a week by, you know, these investment firms asking to talk about, you know, various aspects of policy and industry. But then you also see like, manufacturing companies starting to announce that if this if legislation passes we will do X or sometimes they don't even tie it to the, the legislation they say we have plans for a gigawatt manufacturing facility in the Midwest and they dangle it out there because they want you to see they want the policymakers to see oh this is real and if we do X then that that can materialize. And so we're in the world that I work in, we're starting, we're
0: we're seeing those happen in real time. And can you explain why there has been such a focus on tax credits when it comes to climate policy?
1: You know, if I was looking at the entire toolkit, would I say tax policy is the best way to do climate policy? You know, probably not given the procedural restrictions that Congress is under, the Senate in particular, has to pass legislation that fits within the budget framework in order to have a majority threshold. And it is very clear that there isn't the Republican support to do major climate legislation today. So under those constraints, tax policy is very attractive because it has a proven track record. The wind industry and solar industry have been, you know, more or less built on the production tax credit and the investment tax credit, the fact that Build Back Better, the the engine of um, the climate policy in that legislation, is in the tax code, isn't a surprise. You have you know everything from incentives for. Existing relatively mature technologies like solar and wind, but then you also have incentives for emerging technologies like hydrogen and carbon capture, standalone storage technologies. There's a new tax credit for transmission. There are incentives that are tailored for deploying solar on low income, in low income communities and on multifamily housing. There are adders that the tax credits are tied to paying prevailing wage and hiring a minimum threshold of apprentices, which is you know really important for bringing more people into the, the trades, building these clean energy facilities. It's incredibly comprehensive what they've put together by way of tax policy in the legislation.
0: When you think about these levers for job creation in the Build Back Better bill, why do you think more Republicans haven't shown support for legislation connected to climate change if if you thought about how to do that in a smart way, make it about jobs, make it about international competitiveness, but do it as a Republican and be out in front and say that you're for it why Why does that not work?
1: I think you have Republicans who are supportive of acting on climate, they know it's happening, but the environment is so politically charged that it's just politically dangerous for them to you know align with Democrats, especially when they're using an approach that only requires Democratic votes to pass. They might favor different policy approaches to it. Polling in a lot of research that's been done that shows that incentives and investments in clean energy, especially emerging technologies, but even solar and batteries, has tremendous bipartisan support. But while we have Democratic control of the White House and and Congress, I think you're going to see the focus be on getting the solution, getting as much done as possible in the window that they have.
0: I wonder if we could take a half step back here. C- could you tell us a little bit about what the landscape looks like today for clean energy and where the fault lines are? Not just with Build Back Better, but more broadly, who is coming to the table and what are their messages right now?
1: It's it's actually incredible. Like We're at a time when everybody is basically at the table, nobody is standing on the sidelines. When I started working on clean energy and environmental policy for Senator Reid in the 2000s, this ecosystem didn't exist. There weren't really many clean energy companies. There was no industry really to be had. And now you have some incredibly successful companies, you have quite effective trade associations, and you have a lot of collaboration between folks in the industry and the environmental community because everybody's kind of united on the end goal of addressing climate change.
0: And if you were to imagine a pie chart which represents the total amount of money that's funding, kind of pro clean energy, pro climate, you know, policy, how does that break down?
1: I don't know if I could do the math at the top of my head, um, but I, you know, there are environmental organizations who are are going all in on addressing climate change. Trade associations are putting a fair amount into it. But what I think really is the differentiation here is that you have, you know, so many different companies and entities jumping in and you have more of like a, a grassroots network. And that that people power. Um, you mentioned at the the top of the show that I was a board member of Clean Energy for America, which was the outgrowth of an effort, Clean Energy for Biden, which you know helped organize the the clean energy workforce into an advocacy machine in which you know we were able to connect people using you know virtual online tools and and regular phone calls. Uh, or, or Zoom calls um, to organize everything from you know fundraisers, get out the vote effort, um, people put together policy recommendations for the transition team and it just really tapped into you know what is turning into hundreds of thousands of people in the clean energy space and who have skin in the game and want to see, It succeed, whether it be because it's the place they work or they work there because they want to address climate change, they're getting involved directly, personally at that level.
0: The fossil fuel industry has had such significant power. Is it still a David versus Goliath situation where you've got a more grassroots kind of coalition up against these large corporations, or is it becoming more of a fair dollar for dollar match?
1: It is not a fair dollar to dollar match. Um, I think I'd rather look at it as a million Davids versus Goliath.
0: Okay. Well, it only took one David, right? <laughs> With So that's a fairly optimistic <laughs> description. I am sort of struck by like a general note of optimism in the way you're talking about this. Because I think from the from an audience that's sitting outside of DC, we're struck by kind of a doom and gloom narrative about how hard it's been to pass this legislation. But I'm not really hearing that from how you're describing the situation. Is that fair, or how do you see it?
1: I don't know how I could do this job or or, or get through my days if I was uh, not optimistic. But I mean, I also try to zoom out and put this in perspective. Of uh, The system is not designed to allow things... happen easily. Now, when there's a crisis, it feels like everything comes together and we see that with things like the COVID crisis, things lined up pretty quickly in order to get at least the first aid package done. I've worked on other policies that have taken much
0: longer to finish. What are some examples of that? Just for context for people, how does it compare from a timeline perspective to other legislative efforts?
1: I'm going to choose one that is quite parochial, but like for Senator Reid, he cared a lot about public lands policy. And I spent years working to put together land bills, negotiate on the local level. Then you get them to Congress and go and hunt down your bipartisan support, get everybody in the the Nevada delegation on board in order to pass a 30,000 acre conservation area. It's done once you do it. Um, So it's worth the effort but it takes a lot of time Mm. and a lot of blood sweat tears a lot of compromises you end up giving up a lot in order to get get to a point where you have people in agreement, but then you have something and it's durable because everybody's agreed. I, I that's the process we're in it's not unusual. It's frustrating because we have seen a lot carved out of the legislation and we will probably see more carved out of it um, before it's ultimately passed. but that's the process and that's the that's 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 the Senate.
0: One policy that we've talked a lot about at Climate Now, we've made a number of you know video about and done had other conversations about is just a, a price on carbon. And there seems to be you know fairly widespread agreement among you know scientists and economists that this is the best way to decarbonize. You know, what, why can't we pass a carbon price?
1: The simple answer is it it doesn't have the votes. It doesn't have the political support that it needs to pass. Otherwise, it would be included in Build Back Better, potentially. There is a a group of senators that were working on it, and I I imagine they, they continue working on it because there will be life after Build Back Better. I think that Yes, it would be better if we had a price on carbon. It would be better if we had a national policy on uh, to to address emissions. I don't think it's completely off the table. There's even bipartisan legislation that was introduced in the House. There are a number of uh, Republicans, former members of Congress, and organizations that are working on developing conservative support for uh, a price on carbon. I think that while it might not be there today, in some form, it'll happen. They need to get the political support to make that happen. I think that the benefits of doing a price on carbon are, are there well available, but sometimes politics is a funny thing and it doesn't track exactly what the reports you know, tell you they should.
0: What policies are you seeing that will help transition the American workforce from a fossil fuel-based economy to a renewable energy economy?
1: I'm pretty focused on the Build Back Better effort right now because it's here now in front of us and you know the biggest climate policy that that, um, that Congress has taken up. That's going to lead to construction jobs and jobs throughout the clean energy sector. There are incentives included in there to Source domestically manufactured content. The buying domestic equipment is tied to a program called Direct Pay, which allows you to take the tax credits um, as cash rather than having to go to a bank to to finance them. To turn that to monetize them, that is tied to buying domestic uh, equipment and using that for your facilities. There's also a bonus incentive for domestically produced. Material And then there are specific tax credits for manufacturing offshore wind, solar, semiconductors. All those things create big job opportunities and will require that the clean energy workforce just dramatically increase in size. But then there are also some interesting provisions that are helpful for building that workforce. There's a a requirement for if you take the full value of the tax credits, whether it's, you know, you're building a solar facility, wind facility, hydrogen, you know, carbon capture and storage facility, in order to get the full value of that credit, not only do you have to pay prevailing wage, You'll also have to hire a minimum threshold of apprentices to be on site of your project. And that will create new opportunity, opportunities for new entrants into these industries. As an example of how seriously the industries are taking it, I worked with the, the Solar Industries Association to do a roundtable with a IBEW union, so basically electrician, uh, apprenticeship training facility in Las Vegas. And the, the focus on that was, let, let's, let's discuss what you do and how you do it and, and what your training tools are, but also, you know, to make sure that they, they saw the solar industry reaching out and recognizing, one, we have this requirement, but two, we're going to need this workforce, this skilled workforce available. And we want to start collaborating with you right now to have that relationship so that we can hit the ground running as soon as these incentives pass.
0: Wow, so that's so you're saying that's already been happening. So solar companies are reaching out to this to this group to build this relationship to build a pipeline of apprentices.
1: Yeah, we did the, the, that 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 roundtable in I believe uh, early November, and we had Senator Catherine Cortez Masto participate in it. Several other members of Congress and local officials joined for parts of the discussion, gave you know supportive remarks, but. The real purpose of that was to have, you know, that substantive discussion, make those connections between solar industry and the, the apprentice training folks from the union.
0: Alex, I just wanted to end with this because I think in general, lobbying tends to have a negative connotation. In the public imagination, we kind of see it as this conniving backroom, wheeling and dealing, convincing legislators to do things against public interest. As a lobbyist yourself, what, what do you think of that characterization?
1: Look, uh, lobbying is important to democracy. I, I'm not saying that there aren't bad actors. I'm not saying that there aren't industry and interests that, you know, put hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying and and trying to influence government for causes that I I oppose and, and don't like. But I think the blanket stigmatization of lobbyists and lobbying has has gone too far. Our government is enormous and complex and can be inaccessible even for folks who run companies or run uh, nonprofit organizations or are elected officials for local governments. Do we expect everyone to just be able to access this complicated machine on their own? I mean, I, I, I think that we stigmatize people who represent those folks and kind of lump them in with the bad actors or the causes that, that we disagree with. But I think we also need to, to keep in mind that there are people who lobby and work for public interest causes. They work on social welfare issues. They work on human rights, healthcare access, clean water, and many other things. And do we really want to imagine What laws Congress would pass without those folks? Do I think uh, all lobbyists are good? No, but I do think that it plays an important role and has been a big part of advancing a lot of good causes.
0: That was Alex McDonough, Energy and Environmental Policy Advisor and Partner at Pioneer Public Affairs. That's it for this episode of the podcast. You can check out our other interviews, watch our videos, and sign up for our newsletter at climatenow.com. And if you want to get in touch, email us at contact at climatenow.com or tweet us at WeAreClimateNow. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.